Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 112, To Boldly Go. Welcome to episode 112 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. Well, this time around, I'm heading into one of the bigger pieces of science fiction in our popular culture, which is Star Trek. A little while back, Gene Hendricks and I sat down to talk about a very specific part of Star Trek, which are the original crew movies, the six movies that came out in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, as well as their novelizations. And it's great conversation because it really gets into my specific Star Trek fandom and what we love about the series. I will tell you that the first 10 minutes or so of the conversation have questionable audio quality, and that's because I was having microphone issues. They eventually resolved themselves because I switched Mike's peek behind the curtain. I think my blue snowball mic is dying, so I apologize for that. Anyway, most of the conversation uh, in that 10 minutes that I was able to salvage is the two of us giving our origin stories about all sorts of Trek. The main conversation when we sat down and talked about the movies, the novelization, everything, that's really, really clear, and uh, it'll be easier for you to listen to. So stick around. I'm going to take a quick break, and when I get back, Gene will be on with me. We'll be talking about Star Trek. Star Trek Comic books Mythology Video games Toys Star Wars Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast presented by Two True Freaks Come join me Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. 
Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. My guess this time around is somebody who's been on the show before. We've mostly talked Disney, uh, which is a great topic to talk about. But um, he is also a huge Star Trek fan. Thank you for having me on. Uh, as, as you said, I am a huge Star Trek fan uh, to the point where I actually was in a group that made three, count them three, with a fourth one that might actually see the light of day at some point, Star Trek fan films. <laughs> What's your or- origin story to uh, to Star Trek? How did you get into Star Trek? Uh, well, that came through my parents. Um, I don't remember more or less who you know actually purchased the the VHS tape, but my mom used to watch Star Trek original broadcast. <laughs> it yeah it uh, it it came out when she was a freshman in high school. So she watched that, and then we were one of the early adopters of the VCR. Uh, had a nice top loader model that sat on top of the gigantic TV cabinet <laughs> in the living room. And one of the first uh, VHSs that we got, at least that I can remember, was Star Trek The Motion Picture Special Longer Edition. <laughs> So my my favorite version of that movie is actually longer than most people has, have seen in many a year. And it, that actually spoiled me for the TV series because, as you know, WPIX would show Star Trek quite a bit. <laughs> and that was one of those things where I would see it like Operation Annihilate, for example. Oh, Spock has been blinded by this light. No, he hasn't. He has a sight in the movie. <laughs> I remember WPIX running it a lot, and I remember taping a number of episodes. In fact, when the 25th anniversary rolled around, I remember that they ran a big Star Trek marathon that was the top 10 episodes or something and followed it up with a big 25th anniversary special hosted by Shatner and Nimoy. Yeah, I I remember having that special on its own VHS. Had the special on tape. I know I eventually got rid of the tapes of the episodes because my sister bought me the Blu-ray of the original series a couple of years ago, and I was very pleased to find that the Blu-rays 
hold both the enhanced effects versions of the episode and the original versions. Yes, it, it, it's nice to be able to flip back and forth if you want to. So my origin story informally starts in the early 80s, because at one point I know I had some of my cousin's old Star Trek Mego dolls, uh, like Kirk, Spock, Sp- Scotty, and a Klingon. They all I, they got thrown away at a toy purge years ago. Uh, I also had a few Star Trek The Motion Picture coloring books. I remember that. But uh, Star Trek IV was the first movie I saw in the theater, uh, and then I remember, like you, my parents were early VHS adapters. We had a top-loading VHS uh, VCR. And I remember that my dad also joined the CBS Video Club. I th- I've mentioned this in different places before. This eventually became you know, Columbia House. And Star Trek 1, 2, and 3 were movies that we got as part of our intro package. You know, the 12 for a dollar or whatever it was uh i remember too that they were in the special they were packaged in the special 75th anniversary packaging for paramount you know it was a black box with gold trim and everything um and uh i also had the special longer version of the motion picture so i eventually got all six on vhs um and as i mentioned i got rid of them a few years ago because i got the blu-rays and stuff um i was a member of the fan club at one point uh, which was you got a lot of heavy stuff on next gen, but this was between five and six, I think it was when I when I was the member of the fan club because I remember being really really pumped for Star Trek six to come out. And this would have been my this was ninety Star Trek six was what ninety two. I think so. Ooh, let me see. Roughly ninety yes, two. So that would have been my if it was the it was I know it was late ninety two. So it would have been like my sophomore year of high school. So I was I was pretty pretty pumped for that movie. And um, at one point I had a I still have it upstairs. It's like a lapel pin you could buy for a few bucks out of the back of a fan club magazine. You could buy like all sorts of swag. And it was a film. Uh, it was a badge that like Kirk wore in the original series. You know the the you know the shape with the star and the. In yeah. the middle of it. And um, the only other thing I could think of that I was like, you know, that really comes to mind when I'm talking about Trek and, and back in those days were, were a couple of things that I remember. Um, first was the Universal Studios Hollywood attraction. Ah. Which which I went to uh, chickened out and, and I have a I, I, I have a fear of being volunteered for theme park movies so I theme park shows so I don't go to theme park shows but we went to that and I just watched it it was kind of fun to see it was it was this silly thing where they got a bunch of people to play crew members and <laughs> okay the the reason I'm laughing mm. is our senior trip was to Orlando Florida mm. in high school. And so we went to Universal Studios Orlando. Yeah. And guess what we did? <laughs> you did that, didn't you? <laughs> my 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 friends Jim and Frank and I went and did that. Uh, Jim played the captain character. I was the Vulcan, and Frank was crewman number one. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere, I think my parents still have the VHS. Nice, nice. But it was. That was one of the interesting experiences because they have they well they they don't have they had cue cards. Hmm. Oh, so it's okay, Captain. You read this one next, and then they cut it all together with the original crew. Like at, at one point, um, you know, Doctor McCoy just looks over and says, "Oh, great, another Vulcan." 
That was, that was a fun experience. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I don't know if they still have it at the Holly, because this was the one I went to. It was the one out in um, in L.A., because we, we had gone to San Diego and Los Angeles out when I was, like, in ninth grade on spring break. So we did we stayed in Anaheim and went to Disneyland for a few days, and we drove up to Hollywood to do the Universal Studios tour and, and the, to go to the theme park there. I don't know if they still have that attraction there at all. Um, I I think they scrapped both of them because mm-hmm. uh, I know when we were doing Tales of the Fleet, the previously mentioned Phantom, yeah. one of the uniforms we have in that is from <laughs> that. Uh, it's and it's it's one of those zipper up the back deals, but. <laughs> It's it was cheap. It fit the guy, so hey, it works. Yeah, yeah. So and and before we get into what are the meat of our episode, I, I want to mention um, three books uh, that were really important to me as, as becoming a fan of the show. Two of them I got from the Scholastic Book Club in the fourth grade. You know, the flyer that used to come home with like scary stories to tell in the dark, a bunch of kids' magazine like Dynamite and Hot Dog, and um, and and that paperback, that little black and white paperback I had of Untold Legend of the Batman, this uh, there was the monsters of Star Trek and strange and amazing facts about Star Trek. And I had them both and I read the cover off of both of them, especially strange and amazing facts, which was really just movie trivia. It was like all about it's the whole history of the um, of the show. It it. it there was like, um, you know, little bits. They even got into like the whole Star Trek phase two thing. And this was written at a level that was like, you know, for elementary school students. So it was a, it was pretty cool. And then I went to, um, at the time it was Disney MGM studios in Orlando, obviously. Um, it, this was 1990. So we had stayed at the, I remember we stayed at the Grand Floridian and we did uh, magic kingdom. We did Epcot and, and MGM had opened about a year before. And, um, I looked up online, uh, so, so I was trying to, I was trying to remember the, the shop where I got it. And, uh, because you know, they, they've changed even the shops around there in the last 30 years, which, you know, this, this yeah. Disney tends to do. And, um, a old, like eighties era Disney, bro- Disney, um, park maps were like brochures. It's like, I want to get my hands on one just to flip through it and read all the stuff. It's just, and I'm so glad somebody <laughs> has scanned these things and put them online because like, this was, I just sat there and fell down this rabbit hole of, Oh, the Epcot one. And it has all the stuff. B I think it was at the shop called Lakeside News. And this is located in the back half of the building. That's now it's called Keystone Clothiers, um, which has always been there. I think they just kind of expanded the whole thing. And if, if, for those of you who are who have been to Hollywood Studios but are like, what the hell are you talking about? You're walking down Hollywood Boulevard from the park entrance toward the Chinese Theater, which I don't even know was there anymore. Um, and it's on the last shop on your left. It's kind of shaped like a wedge before you hit like you know the lake with the dinosaur and everything. And this was Echo, yeah, Echo Lake. And this was a at the time it was like a, a it had a lot of special specialized in a lot of science fiction um, type of merchandise. And I remember being a little more open, like in terms of like, you know, the doors, it wasn't as, as claustrophobic, but there was a book called the Star Trek Compendium and it was published by Pocket Books, which published all the um, novels. But this was like a big, bigger size book, like one of those big 
books like uh, the Titans Compendium that I have from Tomorrow's Publishing, like that size. And it was uh, they had one for that, and they had one for the original series. They went on for uh, Next Gen, and I bought the original series one, which took you through all seventy two. Why am I thinking seventy seventy nine? 79 episodes, so sorry. My numbers. Math is hard. Uh, 79 episodes of the series plus what was then five movies because six hadn't come out yet. So, but that, that book was like, again, that was one I just read the cover off of because it was article, it was, it was behind the scenes stuff, it was episode summaries, it was still production stills and everything. So, I wanted to at least mention those because they were very formative in terms of my, my, um, my, Trek uh, fandom and it's interesting because my fandom I've always been a fan but my my enthusiasm for the show kind of waned as, in the mid 90s where I saw um, generations on video I saw first contact in the theater but after that you know I missed the two after that and I saw the first of the JJ Abrams ones I haven't seen any of the other ones since and I watched a fair amount of next gen um, never really got into Deep Space Nine. Uh, I think I completely missed Voyager because I was going away to college and it was just, um, just was completely not on my radar. I watched a little bit of Enterprise and it's just kind of, so I, I, I'm my my Star Trek. Not that I have anything against anything else, but like when I think of Star Trek and I think of what I have loved, it's it's the original series, but it's mostly these six movies. Yeah, I, I'm I'm up there with you as far as that goes. Since you mentioned books, I will also okay. mention books. Uh, two of the the key books that I had uh, was the Franz Joseph Starfleet Technical Manual, mm-hmm. which is the old and it it reads like a technical manual. <laughs> it's not uh, poetic in any way at all, but you get down to the nitty gritty of okay, well. This is what the, the male uniform looks like. This is what the female uniform looks like. On the back of the page, you have the pattern <laughs> for the uniform. Uh, and then the other one was Mr. Scott's Guide. To the I've heard of that, too. And that one I got while I was in sixth grade. And I know this because I still have Gene Hendricks, Mrs. Hoffman, <laughs> in the cover. <laughs> Did um oh go ahead go ahead. I was just gonna say it's uh that one was you know that was written more as if it was Scotty writing it down for a new crew member, mm-hmm. but uh, again it was all the technical stuff. I'm an engineer. Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> These are the books I, I yeah. gravitate towards. <laughs> now, uh, how far down the rabbit hole of the uh, pocket books? expanded universe novels because there were like dozens of them i mean I, yeah I, there i think there was yeah 100 at one point. yeah yeah i i, I dabbled mm-hmm. in those uh i still have a few of them but i had i know one of the ones i had was the mm-hmm. rift i think i still have that one and that, that one's funny because it includes a reference, and this is the one of the MacGuffins of the story, the Illudium Q36 Explosive Space Modulator. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm also a Illudium <laughs> so it works. 
but yeah, I've, I've read a few of those. Um, I actually did a, a book report on one of them. <laughs> I don't remember which one. I think it was Prime Direct. I read that one. That was a good one. But, yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I would see ones that I would like is, uh, that, that title looks interesting. No, Spock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would love to know more about this. Uh, so I still have some of them over in the other room, yeah. uh, but I didn't, I wasn't religious about it. It wasn't one of those, oh, nothing, uh, I have up to 53, I now need 54. Yeah. No, it's, I just, I, I went in. Yeah, I am, I had the benefit of, of having a public library that had a ton of them. They had, I just, I, I w- always picture this of the, they had a whole huge paperback section in like the <clears throat> deepest recesses of the of the of the shelves and it was all like series paperbacks they had like two or three bookcases full of romance you know your your bodice ripper romances but they had two or three full of sci-fi and it was a sci-fi fantasy and then some horror. So you had everything from there were and I never, you know, now I kind of regret not reading these as well. But they had all the Conan novels and the Tarzan novels. Oh. And I was like, why didn't I ever pick those up? Because I remember looking at them and I'd had watched Conan the Barbarian like more times than I could remember. Um, and uh, they had they were getting all the Star Wars novels as they were coming in because um this was around the time that like the uh, the first Zon trilogy was on and they had all the you know the RC Clark books but they had pretty much you know, I mean there were a few gaps here and there but they pretty much had all of the uh all of those pocket books in order <laughs> they didn't alphabetize them <laughs> they put them in number order in terms of series number and then I think after that they would put them in um the bigger ones, either like near or, or some, or, or like after that, like Suspox World and Strangers in the Sky and Final Frontier. So I read a bunch of them by checking them out of the library. I owned a few that I read. Um, I owned a few that I never read. Uh, I remember the Lost Years saga was like a big thing for me. That, yeah, that I, was, that was, that was uh, big. <laughs> I, I read the, the first one, The mm-hmm. Lost Years. But I don't think I went beyond that. I think I might have read the next installment, but I didn't read anything past that. But which you would think it would be right in my wheelhouse because it yeah. bridges the gap, you know. But yeah, you know, I get. I think I think they might have hit just at the wrong time for me. If I remember right, I was in college when they were mm-hmm. coming out, and it might have been towards the end of my college career, so it was one of those things where, okay, now I need to find a job. Uh, <laughs> I can't just be buying books and reading them. Yeah. I am... Um, the first one... Now, the hard... I had the Lost Years in a hardcover. It came out in 90... No, 89. 89, 90, because it was the first one... Um, because I was in seventh grade. I did a book report on it in seventh grade. Um, the second one came out in the eighth. I remember reading it in eighth grade because like the, the, the Lost Years itself was a special standalone novel, but the rest of them were just numbered in terms of the pocketbooks numeration. And I want to say the first um, the first two or three came out while I was still in high school, or at least the first two were. And I remember picking up the rest mainly because I noticed them on the shelf at like Borders or something. I was like, oh, I had been reading these. So um, even at a time when I wasn't reading Star Trek novels anymore, I when I found them, I went and got them because I was that interested in the series. 
Um, okay, so I I must have got seen it way mm. after the fact because I don't remember seeing them until they were in the college mm, books. Okay. Yeah. And then um, th- there's also the DC comics, but that's not something I ever, sh- I-, I bought a few issues of what I guess we would call this. I don't know what they call the ba- the second series, which is kind of the new format um, Baxter series. If you want to go, you know, old, old school with it. Um, I have a bunch now of the first series, which I've read a couple of them, but I'm kind of doing that thing where I'm trying to collect as many as I possibly can in consecutive order so I can just read through them. Um, I mm. do have both issues of Who's Who in Star Trek, uh, and I believe I actually got the cover signed by Howard Chaikin, so um, so I'm, I'm familiar with what, but but from what I, and I think it was is you and, and a couple other people, maybe Andy might have pointed this out, that um, they had a really solid continuity in that Star Trek, first Star Trek series where they were doing kind of what they, what Marvel had been doing with Star Wars, where they were filling in the gap between the movies and then they had to kind of walk things back with the movie to line everything up. Uh, but it seemed like the second series was just kind of like a loosey goosey. Yeah. Well, the, the second series suffered from the we must only use the characters in the uh, Okay. So, but you would, you would have other ones involved, like you you had uh, original characters, but you didn't you didn't have a Konam or mm-hmm. a Bear Claw, or you didn't have any non-original cast protagonists. Mm-hmm. They were just you know window okay. dressing or whatever. But but some of the some of the stories in the second series got kind of mm-hmm. silly. Um, in fact, I I covered one of those issues uh, on the Fan Holes podcast a little while ago, uh, part of the trial of James T. Kirk. And it was, well, I'll, I'll just tell it to you this way. The cover of this issue is the Federation president from Star Trek IV, you know, the bald guy, uh, basically sitting in the judge's position. And in the witness box is Bella Oxmix saying, yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how silly it got. We both did this sort of project. Now, you and I have – you and I probably wouldn't have to watch the movies to talk about the movies because we've seen them so many times. Even even like like five I hadn't seen in, in many years, but I, you know – could have could have kind of gone off the cuff with it, but we each watched these six original crew movies. Um, so starting with the motion picture, and ending with Star Trek: Sixty Undiscovered Country, and we also read the novelizations. Uh, the, the first one of which, which is written by, and I believe it actually was written by Gene Roddenberry, and not like by Harlan Ellison or somebody with a pen name. Like you know how like Lucas gets credit for Star Wars, but it was written by um, right. Alan Dean Foster, I think. Um, no, I think it was actually Roddenberry actually wrote the novel. Uh, and then Vonda McIntyre wrote two, three, and four, and I believe it was J.M. Dillard wrote five and six. Um, and I do, I do like to point out, um, that the number of, of female authors that these novels had, because the Star Trek universe, expanded universe novels, the pocketbooks and everything, had a lot of women writing, uh, like Diane Duane and, um, Vonda McIntyre mentioned, uh, Di McCaffrey was one of them, a couple of other ones. Uh, and, and I remember reading quite a few of them and a lot of them were really, really good. So we're going to talk about the movies and we'll talk about the corresponding books. Um, and, uh, and what, you know, what we think, what we thought of them then, like what we, 
we'll compare the book to the movie. What does the book add anything? Um, does it take anything away? Uh, and we'll start with we'll start with what I know is is your favorite, uh, which is which is the motion picture. The motion picture is. See, two and six are my first two, and um, and and motion pictures like it's almost tied for second. Like Wrath of Khan is my all-time favorite, and then and then there's like there's like a really close separation between because I have a real love for Star Trek Six, but I I, I love I really love this movie. Um, you covered this, I believe it was the very first episode of The Hammer Strikes. It, yes, uh, that was one of those uh, where I just I had to plant my flag. <laughs> so this this is what I like, and then I revisited it mm-hmm. later for the 35th anniversary of the movie, which is quite a way yeah. in the past now. <laughs> with Scott Gardner, another mm-hmm. one who uh, absolutely loved yeah. this movie. But th- this is one of those things where I can I can say that Star Trek Two is technically the best of these Mm -hmm. movies. But the motion picture is still my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So I can can make that distinction. But a a good portion of it is because, like I said, it was my first exposure to Star Trek. And even today, however many decades later, when that travel pod comes around, the music swells and Bang! You hear, see the the shot of the Enterprise, a show mm-hmm. goes and out. Rob Kelly falls asleep. Um, but <laughs> 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 no, but um, but so we both we both just cop to, to owning at one point the special longer version. Uh, the version on the 2009 Blu-ray is just the theatrical release. But I think I, I think I wrote into your show. This might have, this was a very long time ago, saying that. Listening to the two of you talk of it, talk about it caused me to go and throw the Blu-ray in because I hadn't watched any of them yet, and it was the first time that I had seen that movie in widescreen. And now there's there's not a ton of difference in the beginning, but as you get to the V'ger segments and you get to them going through the V'ger segments and over the ship and everything, you finally get the scope of how massive this thing is because the pan and scan on the mid 80s v, you know, VHS tape on a small screen of you know 27 inches if you were lucky right what your parents could afford does not do mm-hmm. this justice and I can see how I, I can see how if you hadn't seen it in the theater there's a lot that gets lost it's 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 one of those movies that I think you would hold up as like this is why you would have a widescreen movie and I gained a yeah. real appreciation for it. Um, I will say there are some moments in it that are slow. Uh, you know, there's some of the criticism is is valid, but I don't I don't give it. I don't think it's all valid. I think the movie gets way more crap than it actually. And, you know, because there, there are moments where um, William Shatner's toupee is out acting him. But <laughs> Shatner's toupee through these six movies is just it's 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 its own entity. It's it's like it's got its own fan fiction at this point. Um, but it's, it's, um, I love this enterprise. It's my favorite enterprise out of like through the first three movies out of all of them. I love the special effects. The score is my favorite out of all six of these movies. And, and I know it will be reused for five. The opening theme will be reused for five would be reused for the star Trek, the next generation sh- show. But 
um, and I opened the sh- I opened this episode with it that that um, flourish he puts at the beginning of the main theme before going into you know where uh, and, and the the full orchestra of of the Star Trek motion picture main theme is just it's it's so amazing I just absolutely love it. Um, what else is about this that you love about the motion picture before we get into the novel? Because we're not doing plot summary here, um, we're just going to assume people have seen these freaking movies. <laughs> they had better have, yeah. Uh, well, it's it. What I what I do like about it is it shows Kirk, and yeah, there, there are some instances where he's too subtle mm-hmm. for his own good, but it shows Kirk changed. He goes from being this bitter admiral who I'm going to get my way no matter what, and you better not stand, you know, in my way, uh, Vanderdecker, you know, formerly captain. And he eventually, once Spock comes on, once he has it out with Decker, as far as, you know, Decker just basically tells him right up front, I know this ship, you don't. Uh, And once, once Kirk settles then the humor starts you know um then he you know he's a lot more at ease with everything and you see captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. he's not stuffy i've been riding a desk for two and a half years admiral kirk he's back to being captain you know now now that we have them right where they want us kirk yeah and and the there's you. Uh, this I think is the brilliant, the, the secret brilliance of the, uh, the what people criticize about some of the performances is that it is the the chemistry on the bridge is very stiff at the beginning. But these are people who haven't seen each other for the better part of um, I don't know how many years have passed since. Um, I mean, in real life, about ten years had passed since the the TV show ended. I don't know how many years in Star Trek, in, in, you know, Star Trek continuity would have passed, but it, we assume it's been a few years. And so they've gotten the band back together and it's just, it's not, it takes a while for them to settle in. So you're right. And by the end you have when, when Kirk, Spock and McCoy are there with um, Decker and Ilea uh, at Voyager six, the satellite, by that point, they've all gelled. And that's something I noticed uh, that I noticed about it on, on what was essentially my like third rewatch in a couple of years that there's, you know, paying because now I'm paying attention to that a little bit more instead of just kind of looking at the movie. Yeah, this this is one of those movies where I've gotten to the point where I'm looking everywhere but the mm-hmm. past. Uh, I was actually when I rewatched it for doing the recording with Scott a few years ago, I was playing a game with myself because the uniforms are one color. Uh, so you're either in blue, gold, white, and then the department is the color behind your uh, Starfleet mm-hmm. emblem. But if you look in most of the scenes, in the background, there is... Red, yellow, and blue somewhere. Hmm. <laughs> Going all the way back to the original series. It's it it it's a special effects thing. It's just one of those having seen the movie as often as I have, I'm now going and playing these games with myself. Okay, what can I see this time that I didn't see before? At one point I noticed when Kirk is beaming 
onto what would be regular one in the next movie. Yeah. And Scotty stand there and he's looking at the crewman operating the transporter like, uh, he's giving it the sidelong glance, like, um, maybe turn the gain up over here. Yeah. And and this movie added a few things that were really cool to the, the whole mythos of Star Trek. They, they upgraded the Klingons. Um, and and I believe it it meant that Mark Leonard or Leonard or Leonard, Leonard. Mark Leonard ended up playing a Klingon, a Romulan, and a Vulcan. I think he's one of the few actors, if not the only actor, to accomplish such a feat. Um, uh, because, you know, he played Sarek, and I believe in another in another episode or movie or something, he did play a Romulan at one point. He, he was the Romulan commander of the yeah. so so he he played a Romulan before. Yeah, and then he played a Klingon in in this. He's on the he's on the um, one of the Klingon ships that gets destroyed. Yeah, he's the captain. Yeah, and it's but it gave us it gave us that it gave us Jerry Goldsmith's Klingon theme, which got updated and used many times throughout, especially through three. Um, and you know we saw, we see use of things like photon torpedoes, which we didn't you know which which becomes like a really cool way to do weaponry in the uh, you know in in the films and stuff, and it does it set a tone. But I always love how this um, really does feel like it, it it feels like the future, but it also fits into the '70s science fiction movie aesthetic. Um, whereas when I'm talking about two, there's a lot of con that is. It's not horror, but it has some of the same kind of tones of of like a John Carpenter is, you know, so we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but uh, what I like about this, this is something that, that I, I'm sure that you'll agree with me on, is that there's a real value in this movie about themes of like humanity and the human adventure. Um, I made a joke on I don't remember what show it was, but I made a joke that like Gene Roddenberry was like one big failure away from basically being L. Ron Hubbard. I mean, because there's like... Because <laughs> I, I listen to L. Ron Hubbard, because I've listened to a couple of... I've seen a couple of documentaries in Scientology. I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm like, he's like an evil Gene Roddenberry. You know, like, if Gene Roddenberry mm. hadn't used his powers for good, <laughs> you've got L. Ron Hubbard. Um, uh, but, like, there, there's this... It, but I think, and I can't remember who it was. Was it you or Scott or Andy or somebody who framed Star Trek as the utopia that comes after the dystopian science fiction in that the disasters and everything had already happened over the 200 to 300 years that had happened between 1966 or 1979 and when these movies are taking place. This is what had resulted and this is humanity finally coming into its own and going out. And I like that idea behind it because it it suggests hope beyond what we see in a lot of science fiction of the era, which is like really, really bleak. Because if you think about it, you've got, I mean, there's a little bit of hope at the end of Logan's Run, but Logan's Run is a dystopian. You've got Soylent Green, and then you would have, you get into the 80s, you have movies like The Terminator. Um, and, you know, we've seen our fair share of, you know, alien invasion movies and all these things where everything's like destroyed or, you know, there, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope at the end. But this is like, so far in the future yet it's like you know no, this could be possible for us and that's something that I, uh, I I like and especially in 1979 which um, I think no matter what your political affiliation you can agree that at least looking back in history it was a very low point 
in terms of America, mm-hmm. because you're, you're talking about you know, the hostage crisis and economic downturns and things. And it was a very, I believe, malaise is the word that was, was used at the time. And, um, and, and Luke would back, Luke would correct me on that if I'm wrong because we've had that conversation, <laughs> but it was, you know, like, you know, I, you know, um, you could agree or disagree with Jimmy Carter's policies, you know, but there, there is kind of a general consensus that this was a very low point and you have th- this movie goes against that tone. And, and I think it was, uh, you know, um, it, it was a good, uh, good message. It didn't succeed on the level they thought it would, you know, which is why they cut the budget for the second one, but it did warrant a sequel. Um, before you get to that, we'll get to the novel. Any other thoughts on the actual movie? Cause I know we've, you know, uh, we've talked about it before. You've talked about it before. So there's only so much yeah. you need to say. Yeah. It's, uh, if, if I get going on this, yeah. we'll be here all yeah. night. <laughs> Let's yeah. move on. Well, because the novel, so I read the novel, um, I just gotta make, find my notes. I read this novel in the eighth grade. Um, I remember the public library having them. I remember, I can't remember if I read it because I wanted to read the motion picture novel or I wanted to read it because it was number one in the series. And I always loved reading number one in the book series because like of the Hardy Boys or like anything like that, because, you know, I also collect comic books and I like to read a number one. You know, <laughs> it's just I like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. First episode of a sitcom is on. I'm watching, um, you know, and uh, I, I remember like loving this. And it honestly is one of my all time favorite novelizations. Um, which is something I think I mentioned on my novelization episode of, of required reading because I, it's a good read. It's as good a read as the film. In some places, it's a little bit better. Um, what, what's your imp- impression of, of Gene Roddenberry's novel version of Star Trek The Motion Picture? I, uh, un- unlike you, uh, I hadn't actually read this until about five huh. years ago. And it was one of those things where I just it it was never around where I could just grab it and read it. So, uh, but when I did, it's it adds a lot mm-hmm. to the movie. Uh, some of the stuff in it, I not like the the main conceit of the the novel is that it is being written by Kirk, who does not like his portrayal in what we know as the original series because he feels it's been, you know, too glamorized. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's sticking to the facts to the point where he says, and everything in here was checked by the people involved, except (laughs) you have internal monologue from, from Ilea, from Peter, How in the hell do you check those? Uh, but the the overall picture you get from this, it it just adds so much to the film that now when I'm watching the transporter scene, I know that other than Commander Sonak, it was Kirk's ex-wife. L- Lori. And, Lori. And... She was volunteering to help him because she did. She was the one that told him, "Oh, this is what's going. This is what hap- is happening, and you're not going to be mm-hmm. involved." <laughs> to which Kirk said, "Well, screw you. I'm going to Nagora." But you watch Shatner after that scene, and 
he is holding it in. You can, at least for me, I see on his face, I want to break down right now because this woman that I truly cared about died a horrible death in front of me. But he can't. That's why he chokes stuff, you know, uh, Starfleet Kirk. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. he's trying to go through the motions. If you didn't know that from the book, it may not be as effective. Yeah, and I didn't for when I first saw the film. Um, and that was that, – that, I don't want to say that that scene scared me because I was too old to be scared by something like that. But it definitely stayed with me because it's it's kind of a gory scene in the film. Um, but when he mentioned – when I got to that point in the novel – I had already read the first two books of the Lost Years, and she is a big character in those novels. And I realized that – so I don't know if J.M. Dillard, who wrote the Lost Years, and then whoever wrote the second one, um, had a Bible to go by that, like, you know, whoever was in charge of these – the group editor, Roddenberry himself, had given them, or if it was just a really deep pull, like they had read that novel, and you know, but it was uh, – it was a – continuity thing that I went and was reading this. I remember I was in like study hall or something and I was reading this. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> like, and this is before, you know, this, this came out years before this novel. I was like, Oh crap. Like there's, there's a continuity here. So I thought that was really, really cool. Um, yeah. I liked the fact that V'ger had a consciousness in the novel that they could give it more characterization because you can't do that in, um, a film like that. It, it probably would not have worked. Uh, it's just this thing. Why is everything out there called a thing? <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, especially when Ilea, when they're in Ilea's quarters yeah. and the probe is reacting, Ilea has resurfaced. In the novel, you get that V'ger is, oh, no, you didn't, and shuts yeah. it down. And, and um, to Roddenberry's credit, now I don't know what was cut from the script because of, of length. He gives you Hura a lot more to do because there's like a relationship between her and Ilea here and there at one point. Um, you know, there's just little, little character beats among other members of the crew that we don't necessarily get in the movie that really only, you know, they, they would be fun to see in the movie, but I understand why they might have been trimmed out for the sake of, uh, of streamlining the, the film that was already pretty long. And, um, but I, I liked the, the only the only complaint I had, to, had about the novel was that the ending is very by the numbers. Like we have all this like he could have added like 10 more pages just to give us a little bit more introspection or something. It seems like the movie, the, the, the film just kind of follows. It just adapts it, it. It adapts the ending. And I felt like we got way more. Um, it almost took longer for the movie to end than the book. You know what I mean? Like it just it, it yeah. could have gotten yeah. something. It could have been a little bit more reflective for all the stuff we had gotten throughout the first three quarters of the novel. The the, the book just kind of ends, whereas the movie we get, the movie lets its ending breathe for a little while before going to the human adventure is, is just beginning. Um, there. Yeah, I think if if he had an epilogue, mm -hmm. uh, well, let me, let me ask you this first before I go into this. Have you read two thousand sixty one? Honestly. No, I remember checking it out of the library, attempting it, and never finishing it. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, so in 2001, Dave Bowman is taken yeah. into the monolith. In 2010, Hal is mm-hmm. taken in. In two, the end of 2061, Haywood Floyd okay. is. And at the end of that, you have essentially a triumvirate, a united being between Floyd, uh, Bowman, mm-hmm. and Hal. And it's, a, it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition of how, how they're all combining. If, and admittedly, that was in 85, so that was several yeah, years yeah. after this. If we had an epilogue like that of Decker, Ilea, and V'ger realizing what they were becoming, maybe not to the end point. You know, we don't. We still need some mystery there. But just how they're, you know, Ilea is now back. V'ger is full of wonder at, oh, I can now grasp these other dimensions, and Decker is. Uh, happy to be fulfilling his need to explore and just something like that I think would have routed up myself. yeah yeah but even so it's such a worthwhile book um, and itself and, and all of these books don't take a very long time to read uh, which I think is is also good I mean like I think I might have read that in a day a day and a half I mean because it was a it's it's a very easy read but B it's also like you know I'm you're sucked in pretty quickly um, there are points where Roddenberry focuses a little too much on Kirk's sex life, um, or his libido. And certain parts of yeah, his anatomy. libido is like it's like yeah, well, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I understand like what um, what Kirk was in the original series, and, and the running jokes about you know how he you know if it was he didn't care if she was green or whatever, uh, you know he. He'd go after, but at the same time, um, I was wondering if he was working through something that you know, <laughs> in the pages. Of the- <laughs> it, almost, it almost sounded that way, and you know, the the invention of the ghosts, yeah, and their their uh, pheromones and what they do, and you know, seeing and see. Here's the thing: if you go by the J.J. Abrams mm. track, and like you, I've only seen the first mm. one. Kirk would have just jumped out mm-hmm. right there. You know, probe or not, so it's mechanical. Bang, he would have been right on her. In this, he knows he can't. He feels it happening. He's focused on where certain things are pointing. And, but he resists. He's like, no, no, we're in danger. I have to, <laughs> I have to move forward. We can't be doing this yeah. right now. Now, and there's one other, there are a couple little details about, like, something on their belts. I'm trying to remember. Oh. Well, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the technology, technology yeah. In this, it, it goes mm-hmm. away. After this novel, it goes away because it would not, it would hamper story yeah. writing. Like, uh, the Kirk finds out about everything in, with the Klingons because he has a transceiver implanted in his brain. Oh, yeah, that's what it was. That he that he's getting these transmissions from mm-hmm. the probe. Uh, the, the communicators are now on their wrists. You know, it's not the chest emblem yet, like Next Gen, but it's wearing them so they're not leaving them behind. And the belt buckle is a medical monitor. So you can tell everyone's status 
medically and where they are in the ship. So, you know, if someone was starting to feel a lot more stress, then sick bake is, oh, hey, you know, crewman such and such. Maybe you should take a break, you know, go over here, you know, go into one of those little alcoves that are around the deflector dish for mm. some reason. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, chill out for a while. If you had those down the line, you would eliminate a lot of story. Costs. Yeah, which so they didn't include them in the movie. And, and perhaps it's one of those things where they were like, you know, wait, hold up on. And maybe they saw it or they didn't feel like the need. They didn't need to explain it in the film. So keeping it in the book is not too bad, especially since you're right. It does go away by two. Um, just a couple of other, so, so I, I, uh, there's a, one of the best websites out there, if you want to know what happens in a lot of the expanded universe of Star Trek is memory beta. It is the expanded universe wiki companion to memory alpha, which is essentially the Wikipedia for Star Trek and memory beta has all of the plot points and details as people have filled them in on the novels, the comics, kind of the ancillary stuff and it, you know, it crosses back into alpha and stuff like that. So I went on there and I was, I looked up V'ger. I'm like, does V'ger appear in other novels? Is there a mention of blah, blah, blah? Not oh. really. <laughs> there is a brief mention of V'ger and it's really only, it has nothing to do with the plot. It's more of just placing it along a timeline in the novel, strangers from the sky, which is, uh, which is a retelling of, it's almost like this weird Back to the Future type of thing, and Kirk and Spock being back in time with Gary Mitchell, um, and and then uh, the first meeting between Vulcan and Human. It's actually a pretty cool adventure novel as far as Star Trek goes. Uh, and there's a modern framing device that's set after the motion picture, and I think there's just a couple of mentions of like you know people know what Kirk did to save the world for V'ger. But but then there's a novel from about 2005 or so called um, Ex Machina by Christopher Bennett, which he begins the novel with an introduction about how much he lo he likes or appreciates the motion picture. And, but it's also a sequel to a third season episode called, which I believe this is the longest title for the episodes from the show for the world is hollow. And I have touched the sky. And yep. so that, so in that episode, the enterprise comes along across a planetoid called Unata. It seems dead on the outside, but everyone lives within. It's controlled by this supercomputer called the Oracle. Uh, it's not the best episode of the series. It almost feels like a budget or a bottle episode because it's all like one set except for the bridge set. Um, and it's very minimal. Uh, they, they rescue the world. They stop the Oracle, blah, 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 you know, in the episode. Well, in the Bennett's novel, and I'm, and I'm doing this, uh, very briefly, the V'ger connection is that as V'ger was leaving the galaxy, it got noticed throughout the galaxy, and a cult of V'ger has popped up among people who were already still loyal to this oracle. And it really becomes more of a um, sequel to that episode than it does have any real actual connection. Like, it has a little bit of a thematic connection to the motion picture, but, you know, or, or it uses that thread of V'ger. It has a little... It goes a little too heavy on the like war on terror allegory that it's trying to come across with because this was it was 2004, not 2005. Do you have you read it or, or are you familiar with it at all? I've mm -hmm. heard of it. I haven't read it. Uh, there's there's very little that I've read out in mm -hmm. basically in this century. Star yeah. Trek novels. I, most of my stuff is 80. Yeah, I, I would not have um, read it had I not been able to find it for very, very cheap. <laughs> so I, I managed to find it on the cheap. Now, 
Um, but I, so I, I did kind of think, okay, what if I, I look at a couple of things that have to do with, um, you know, tangentially, I didn't want to go too far because I would have been watching like five or six episodes and reading all these books. So I, I kept it pretty tight. I did rewatch where no man has gone before because it's one of my favorite episodes anyway, you know, um, mm-hmm. before I watched wrath of Khan, I did watch space seed, uh-huh. which is the, which is the episode where Khan is introduced. He is a genetically engineered Superman, essentially from the late 20th century who, one of many who essentially tried to take over the earth or did, and they were eventually fought back and their punishment because no jail on earth could hold them. So they were exiled into space on a ship called the botany Bay in, um, in this episode, the enterprise finds the botany Bay. They revive the crew. Khan tries to take over the enterprise essentially succeeds, but then is eventually taken down. They deposit Khan, his followers and, um, why am I blanking on her name? MacGyver, Dr. Marla Mar- MacGyver. Marla yeah, Dr. Marla MacGyver, who is now Con, is going to be Khan's wife. And the, whenever they show her and Khan interacting, they cut to her and it's filmed through like a, an Elizabeth Taylor cheesecloth. And she's like looking at him dreamily. It's it's very of its time in terms of the way they compose those scenes. But I will say, Monta, Ricardo Montalban, who plays Khan in both that episode and the movie, this man has presence. Back in 1967, 66, 67, 66. and and in in 1982, and um and he had good presence on Fantasy Island. But it's a to- like the fact that he had like he could play this like big supervillain type and, and still play like Mr. Work, you know, showed you how good he was as an actor. Um, and the episode really holds up. So then there's a three series, there's a series of three novels by Greg Cox. It's called the Khan trilogy. Um, this is another one I found out about. The first two are about Khan, um, being on earth, his origin story on earth before the Botany Bay gets exiled. It, it it's, it's a fun read. The, there's a framing device because they have to work Kirk, Spock, etc. into it with Klingons and this planet of genetic engineering. The framing device actually doesn't work very well because the protagonists in the novel are Gary Seven and Roberta from Assignment Earth. And that's kind of fun. The only thing I don't like is that, that Cox tries to work it into a, our modern timeline. So instead of having Khan take everything over and everything on earth and, and lead to essentially like the great disaster or whatever, it's all like the shadow war. Uh, you know, it's, it's okay. The third novel is called, it's called to rain in hell. It's the exile of Khan Yun and Singh. So it, it's, it, it bridges the gap between the end of wrath of Khan uh, to so the end of space seed and wrath of Khan in, in that time. And, and um, it, the framing device is Kirk, Sulu and Spock and I think McCoy going back to um, City Alpha 5 after the voyage home to just kind of see what was there. It's actually very, very good. I, I would recommend that one. Um, it's it's the most solid of the three. But uh, we, we see, you know, what happened to them after Sadi Alpha 6 exploded in space? How did Marla MacGyver's actually die? You know, like, you know, the infighting among his people and everything. How did they get to the point where he was so bitter when they meet him? in Star Trek two and he shows that thing in Chekhov's ear, which once you see it, you cannot get it out of your head. Um, literally. <laughs> um, and, and of course the, you know, like I said, this is like, you said, this is the best one. This is my favorite one. 
my, four was my first movie, but then I went and rented two, and I, I watched The Wrath of Khan so many times. We had it taken yeah. off of HBO. This this was because uh, we had we had VHS tapes that had three or four movies mm-hmm. per tape, and this was number one slot on the one tape. So I I would watch this, and then we had the when we eventually bought it, we had the same version you did, the black box with the the gold trim yeah. around it. So yeah, that that's. <laughs> this got watched yeah. quite a- it looks really good on Blu-ray, by the way. And uh, this introduces a character who I actually always really liked, which was Sabic, uh, first played by here by Kirstie Alley, who would eventually go on to be in Cheers. I think I'm, this is where Shaq would say, of course, she's hot, um, <laughs> at least back then. She's hottest in the summer school. If I'm being, if I'm going to be completely <laughs> honest about it, so I, I, granted, I, I love summer school. There are some places in this movie, you know, this this movie is really tight. I noticed that it was, it's like a tight two hours, if that, which is unheard of these days. <laughs> it's like we get like two and a half hour movies for like just your basic like. There are some Marvel movies that that, that come in under two and a half hours, but so many of them are so long. And I'm watching this and I'm like, this is a tight movie. There's there's not a lot of fat for this movie to trim. And there's places where the budget shows in that Kirk and Con are not actually ever on screen at the same time. Um, they're just kind of going at each other over the same bridge set, just redressed. We, we you know, we can kind of see it. Um, there are some, of course, Points, historical points in the movie that have become internet jokes, especially Kirk screaming, Khan! Um, uh, although it's such a great, there's some great scenery chewing uh, in that whole movie, because Montalban is having so much fun, and and I'm I'm there for it. It's like him, him and then Christopher Plummer in Six, like, make a meal out of that role, and, it, and it's so fun to watch. Um... A couple of things I love, and then I'll, I'll let you kind of hop in here. Uh, first of all, the whole – I had to look up the, the origin of this story, this this phrase. It's called, old soldiers never die, they simply fade away. It's often attributed to uh, General MacArthur. He used it. It's actually an older English phrase. Um, and it really feels like this is what the theme for Kirk is, because this is a lot of what this movie is. And then three as well is Kirk looking at mortality because he's like he's middle aged at this point. Kirk's kind of in that he's like, where do I go from here? I'm getting old. And and we have that, of course, Spock dies at the end. And and it really uh, it, it, the emotional beats in the Wrath of Khan really, really hit you. Uh, the other thing is a technical thing, uh, the Y-axis aspect of the nebula scene where he's like, you know, Khan's too linear <laughs> and the Enterprise is above it. It's, it's like right up there with like the Millennium Falcon going down between two Star Destroyers right before the asteroid battle and Empire or right after, you know, that scene, right, where they <laughs> – it's like, yeah, there's down. There is down. There's a Y-axis in space. And, and I love how and, – and then that scene – where um, the Enterprise is able to sneak up on the Reliant and just fire away. It's so good um, because the score is so good and, and everything. Um, anything else? That, what, what else do you like about just things from the Wrath of Khan that, you know? I'm... Well, this this is one where 
if you go by the expanded universe, uh, at the end of the motion picture, Kirk is in command of the mm-hmm. Enterprise, and he he does another five yeah. year mission. And that was uh, in some of the novels, but also in the Marvel comic series. And then he comes back, and he's back to being Admiral. Admiral Kirk. And in this movie, he knows. Down to his bones, he knows he is never going to be a starship captain again. And that is what has hit him. And that's why he's so depressed and Mm -hmm. and everything. Uh, And you see in this how... Except for Kirk, everybody on there, all the original cast, they're happy in what they're doing. They're happy in their own skin. Uh, Sulu, not so much at the end of this, (laughs) because of a scene that got deleted and is in the novelization. But uh, everyone is trying to get him, McCoy especially, trying to get Kirk, hey, come on. You're, you're on the Enterprise again. Yeah, you're not the captain, but you're on the Enterprise again. And, you know, it's once Khan shows up, you know, once, once there's the emergency, we're, we're back to just what I said in the motion picture. Captain yeah. Kirk's back. He, you know, he takes it, you know, he's all trying to put it off. Oh, no, Spock, you take and Spock's like, you're kidding, right? <laughs> you are the captain. Yeah. Yeah, but like you said, it's tight. It is. It it's just goes, 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 goes. You don't really get a breath in this, and then you get when they get to regular one, and you see what Khan mm-hmm. has done, and then you yeah. Novel. So let, let's get into that because the novel yeah. gives us the regular one crew as actual characters beyond Carol and David Marcus. And there's a whole storyline. There's all, now, now the movie could have done this, but it would have been a lot longer. I'm glad it didn't because it needed to be shorter and it needed to have a tighter, quicker pace if they were going to be able to make a third. Um, you know, it it, it 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 did what it needed to do, but the novel you can expand on it. And there's even a little bit that. Um, Two of them have created a video game that takes up so much memory that they have to keep dumping and backing up memory banks and stuff, and then that's what they leave for Khan to find. It's such a great little detail. But yeah, you're right. Like, they slaughter this crew. That, not, not just slaughter. They torture. <laughs> yeah. to, to the point, and uh, what you find out in the novel is that two of the scientists are Delta. Mm-hmm. So like Ilea, they are Delton, and apparently, and they're lovers, so they they can be off on their own, and no humans have to lose their men, yeah. their minds. But they, what you find out in the novel is that Delton Deltons can decide to die, and when the one is being tortured, she basically says, "Okay, I if I go any further, I am going to give up secrets and." I am dead. Bang. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Jedha, who is dead, feels that, feels her die. And you, you just get this, this, this immense sadness mm-hmm. from him. And he, as, as we know in the movie, he gets disintegrated yeah. later. So, yeah, it's, um, but even beyond that, the, 
the information about Preston, Peter Preston in this. Now, I knew that he was Scotty's nephew because I'd seen the deletes. Yeah, so had I. All right. But as I wrote you, as soon as I read, <laughs> as soon as I read it in the novel, I wrote you a message. Like, Preston's fourteen. <laughs> Maybe he lied about his age. Yeah. Well, from what I understand, the the way this is written is it's almost like, and this this kind of bears itself out in next gen. Whereas now the the military academies are post high school. It's almost like here, Starfleet Academy is high school. Okay. So it's, it's like, this is his, it's his first training voyage, which means he's a freshman. He just finished his freshman Mm. year and is now out. This is what they do in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a little Starship Troopers, which, which kind of works out as well. He's a little bit Wesley Crusher. In that regard, too, yeah. uh, except he's not on the bridge, he's in engineering, but since his uncle is one of the bigger names in Starfleet engineering, then then that makes sense. Um, and and you get a, a good amount of backstory on Scott's mm-hmm. family. A lot more in the next, yeah. next novel, but in here, you know Preston's got an older yeah. sister, who is a lieutenant commander, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, and she's told him, you know, okay, well, you have to act like, you know, such and such to the point where Preston pulls a practical joke on Kirk, <laughs> which I was dying. I was reading that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Here, here's your bowl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. And that makes you feel his death. All mm-hmm. the more, and especially because in the novel you find out that Savick is teaching him math. You're like tutoring him, yeah. Theoretical, yeah. It's, it's some high end. He, she's mm-hmm. his tutor, and he's got a on her. And quite frankly, yeah. who wouldn't? Yeah. Uh, and that makes when Scotty comes up to the bridge in the movie, and she turns around and gasps. You know, yeah. Why. <laughs> because she knew about the crush, but she was friends with him. As just, and something else you find out in this that is expanded on in the the volume one of the DC comics is the fact that Sapphic is half mm-hmm. Romulan and came to Vulcan later in life and is trying, you know, trying to control her emotions, but she's got this savagery hidden deep in her. Yeah, and and there's uh, and she has a more physical relationship with David Marcus than is in the movies, um, oh, especially yeah. in by the end by the third book. Um, you know, they actually you know um, they you know they they've consummated that relationship. Uh, but yeah, I liked how they went more into her half Romulan personality and and how that does involve rage and anger and how she's trying to hold that back in the role that Spock played in bringing her up. And, uh, you know, and, and again, these are things that you you would have probably made the film would have probably gotten in the way of the film, honestly, um, especially, you know, if you think about the way the film is structured, uh, but really, really works in a novelization. And Fonda McIntyre does an outstanding job. She even gives some of Khan's crew, Joaquin or Joachim or, you know, the the. The, the pretty blonde guy who's his second hand man 
um, he's hesitant in the film and calls things into question. Um, there's more tension between the two of them in the novel. He's a little bit more stepping up to Khan as opposed to being kind of like, you know, asking him if he's okay with this or like, like scared of Khan, but at the same time, like he knows that, you know, Khan's kind of, especially when they're in, um, when they're in the nebula and he's like, we can't go in there with the bubble. He's like, go in there. And he's like, okay. You know, and you can tell he's scared in the novel when there, there's some tension between the two of them, which would totally make sense because they're all like generically engineered, crazy egomaniac type of thing. So there, there's that. And, and we know from reading enough comics that villains don't always work together very well anyway. So, so it, <laughs> it was, it was a really good character beat. And, um, and I like how also, and this is something that I really thought was, was cool was Terrell doesn't know who Khan is. And they explain, Vonda McIntyre explains it away by basically saying that the Enterprise and then Starfleet covered up Space Seed, which makes total sense. Military cover-ups are as old as time. So when you, when you give us a couple of sentences of saying, yeah, they kind of covered this up, we as an audience are like, of course they covered it up. You know? It wouldn't look good, you know. That you had you had this crazy guy, and he took over a starship. And now you have to explain this to the to the top brass or to the public. Like, no, 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 you know. And, and it was one mm-hmm. incident. So uh, yeah, Terrell doesn't yeah. know about it. Okay, he wasn't involved, you know. But then Chekhov, who, according to everything, was on the Enterprise. It was yeah. just night shift, so you, that's why you didn't see him in the original episode. But he doesn't remember about Alpha Seti 5, as the novelization mm-hmm. puts it, because it was one incident. Yeah. He's got this nagging feeling in the back of his head, but it's like, I have no idea what's going on. Then he sees Botany Bay, and that's why you get the reaction. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love how uh, how she writes it in, in the novel that when Chekhov gets upset, his English mm-hmm. <laughs> he start he starts speaking yeah. pigeon English yeah 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 and then um, I, I didn't have anything I read between uh, two three and four because it essentially is a trilogy of movies that take place fairly close to one another there's the implication that a series the months have passed between the films but in the case of like between three and four, they're on Vulcan the entire time between the two movies. They've just been there for you know several months, and the implication at between two and three was it took them a long time to get home. Yeah, they 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 essentially have to yeah. get home. Uh, now in the DC Comics series, like you said, they were doing a Marvel mm-hmm. Star Wars. They were trying to link. So you have the beginning of the first volume of the DC comic series happens after Rathacon and then goes into search for Spock. And they have, it's not entirely seamless the way they, they bridge the movies, but I think it works really well. So if you read the DC comic series, it's like, Oh, okay, that's fine. They had these adventures here, but if you just want watch the movies, you're not really missing anything. And, oh, and, and one other thing, because you mentioned Sulu, I, I didn't realize that that early, because I think it's in the Wrath of Khan novel. I know it's in the Search for Spock novel. Mm-hmm. That early, Sulu had been promoted to captain of the Excelsior. And, and then 
Yeah, the, he he was on yeah. the heat to do this last training cruise, and then he was going to be yeah, and, post. and that and there's this whole subplot basically through two, three, four, and five about how he's supposed to be captain of the Excelsior, but and we finally get it at the beginning of six. Um, so yeah, so three now. Uh, we're going to start talking about the movie The Church of Spock. This is 84. This is this is like the big budget reward for the, how well Star Trek II did. Um, this movie was pretty big from what I remember when it came out in 1984. Uh, and, um, and then ni- and in 1986 when 4 came out, that was a Big, big movie. I mean, that was that was one of the, the the big ones. And this is now this is Paramount riding a pretty big high at this point because '84 is the year that Beverly Hills Cop comes out. Like the early to mid '80s of Paramount is uh, is a big, big period for that studio. Um, owed a lot to somebody who you and I are familiar with because of his time at Disney, which is mm-hmm. Michael Eisner, because he was at Paramount. Yep. Um, and uh, just a, a quick recommendation for anybody who has Disney Plus. And Gene, I don't know if you've watched this, but they have a documentary series called The Imagineering Story. Yeah, well, we, yes, I we, got a, we just finished episode three. Yes, we finished the the episode we just finished was the uh, the death of Frank Wells, the opening of Euro Disney. It is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm a geek for Imagineering stuff anyway, but this was like, oh, this is so cool. And my, my son's really into it and stuff. So it was, so it, those of you watching, if you have Disney Plus and have not watched the Imagineering story, go through it. It's really, really fascinating. Um, and uh, so anyway, back to this. So the search for Spock comes out. It replays the end of Wrath of Khan from the point where Spock dies up to the launching of his, his – uh, photon torpedo uh, coffin out into the, the ether. It gets caught in the Genesis um, uh, orbit, lands on the planet Genesis, and then we get the, you know, the, um, the, we see it, the title comes up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, as far as, I guess, in my ranking, it's behind the motion picture, like it's behind the motion picture somewhere near the voyage home, depending on how I'm feeling. The final frontier is my least favorite of the six. Um, I think the search for Spock blends humor and pathos pretty well. Um, the score is a pretty good one. It, it, it's, I don't like it as much as, um, as two, but I, I think it fits the mood of it very well. Robin Curtis does not get as much. Robin Curtis is a bit underrated. I think she's okay. Uh, you know, I think she gets treated unfairly because she did take it over for Kirstie Alley because Kirstie Alley's agent had not worked the sequel in and it just, there was a whole contract thing with her and, uh, they didn't want to pay her what, you know, what she wanted to get paid or something. Um, but then we have, we have, uh, a, a, them fighting Klingons. Introducing the, the concept of the Klingon Bird of Prey, which was supposed to be a Romulan ship. And in the backstory of the movie is that they were going to use Romulans. And they didn't, but they still had the ship built anyway. So I think the backstory is that it, is that the Romulans and Klingons probably shared technology anyway. So it just made logical sense that they had this warship. And that actually goes all the way back mm-hmm. to the original series. Because you see in the Enterprise incident that the Romulans there are using Klingon mm-hmm. D7s. As gotcha. their ship, so it, it, trading technology actually it, it, it can get a pass. which also makes sense that both of those both of those militaries have cloaking devices as well. 
Um, yes. Christopher Lloyd, who about a year later would play Doc Brown and had come off of several years as Jim on Taxi, plays Commander Courage. Courage? Courage. Courage. And, uh, and one of his right-hand men is, is played by John Larroquette, which I just, I just wanted to mention that John Larroquette played the Klingon. I liked Lloyd in this movie. I really liked the whole fight scene with Kirk. I have had enough of you. Yeah, well, this... This movie is the second time I've seen Christopher Lloyd play a villain mm-hmm. because the first time was when he was Butch Cavendish in Legend mm. of the Ranger. And he was as ruthless in that as he is in here. So it, it, he, he can play oh, a bad guy really, really in, well. Um, he would, a few years after this, would play Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger yeah. Rabbit, which is, is a great role of his. The destruction of the Enterprise is so well done. The the self-destruct and, and, and him, Kirk, leading them into a trap, knowing that they're sitting ducks and knowing what he has to do. Have you watched Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated? Have yes. you watched the last episode of it? I don't think so, no. There's a reference to that scene in one of the last episodes of the last season of the show, I think there were only two seasons, in the last episode of the last season, that something happens, and they reference what McCoy says to Kirk. And I watched that, Brett must have been seven or eight, and I went, I was just like blown away that they did that deep of a pull. Because it's not something that your average parent watching a Scooby-Doo reference a movie would get. I was, I was like, it's like, brilliant. Um, uh, <laughs> But then you've got this scene, and 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 I want to see you. You've mentioned this before, and, and again, like I, I go back through the number of times I've heard two true freaks cover Star Trek. <laughs> two true freaks has never covered Star Trek. Um, David's death and Shatner's acting is some. It is some of the best acting of him in the entire movie series. His reaction to that, him falling back, missing the chair. Um, which I think was an accident anyway. Uh, and then he, the whole, you cling on bastards, you killed my son. It's just the, the, the shock in his face. It's just so well done in, in a movie that, um, that really, uh, you know, really does its best to live up to the task it had in front of him, in front of it after, after the ending of, of three. Um, I wish Genesis had been a little bit more explored in the film. Because it kind of gets blows up, yeah. and that's about it. But other than, and, and there's there's things that the novel will expand upon that I really love, and I kind of wish were in the movie because there are parts in the movie where I'm like, yeah, they're they're kind of, you know, moving along. Uh, they they could have they're rushing things in a few places. But but that scene with with David's death and then that whole sequence that ends with the end of the Enterprise and then with the fight with the Klingon, it's it's some of the best stuff in, in the entire movie series. Yeah, that's that's some really powerful stuff. And uh, my friend Ed tells a story. Uh, he's a, 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 a few years older than we are, and he saw this in the theater. And being a big Star Trek fan, he had watched all the original series. And when they start doing the uh, setting the self destruct sequence, it's the exact mm-hmm. same sequence that they use in the TV show, and he recognized it. And he's like, oh no. 
because apparently he hadn't seen the trailer because you blow up in the trailer, blow up in the damn trailer. (laughs) But he he's like gripping the arms of his chair because he didn't want it to happen. That happens. But one you had mentioned Robin Curtis and what I came around to, and before even reading the novelization was if you look at her performance compared to Kirstie Alley is Kirstie Alley at the end of that of Star Trek two was actually crying. Uh, uh, so my opinion of Robin Curtis's performance is she's overcompensating. Okay. She had a, an emotional breakdown. Savick had an emotional breakdown at Spock's death. And now she is just diving into, I must be logical. I must control my emotions. So she's mm-hmm. shut down. And that makes a lot of sense because this entire film and the novel as well is about grief. You know, that that's the major theme. So if that's her way of grieving, it makes a lot of sense. Or more, probably more to the point, her way of avoiding it. Yeah. Because if she doesn't have emotions, she can't yeah. grieve. And, and she, you know, goes the opposite way in the novelization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with <David. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things that I, I found really interesting while I was reading novelization is you have three full chapters before the movie. Yeah, that was my first note. I loved that too. Them getting it's them yeah. getting on them getting the mission for the and heading off to the Grissom. You get a little bit more of the of the um, the, the crew of the Grissom and, and you know like how that gets set up. Carol makes appearances in the rest of these. Uh, I don't know if she's in this one. I have I have a note about her later on. Um, in the Voyage Home novel, so I'll save it for that. And we see a little bit more again of the crew, other than Kirk and Spock, etc. Well, Kirk and McCoy, etc. Um, like, for instance, like people like Yohura, who really aren't given very much of the to do in the movie. <laughs> and in, in this, you know, in the novel, Uhura plays a, such a huge yeah. role in the Enterprise Escape. The by. Fouling all the lines of communication, which you would think she would know yeah. how to do, and then having to run—I mean, literally run—into the Vulcan embassy to avoid yeah. being arrested. Yeah, which is which a sets up why she's on Vulcan at the end of the movie, but at the same time, it 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 it, it gives a lot more suspense to it too, which I really really liked um, about even though I knew she was going to make it to Vulcan because I've, I had seen four, but even then it's like, it wasn't much of a spoiler because, it, because since you know, the hero's going to get out of it, you're like, okay, well how, and that becomes the suspense, um, in the same way, you know, in the same way we've all read comics and stories and stuff, you know, where the, you know, the hero's not going to die. It's just, how are they going to get out of the trap? Um, you know, how is James Bond going to get off the table with the light, with the laser pointed at his groin and Goldfinger? You know, it's, <laughs> it's too early in the movie for Mr. Bond to die. And uh, yeah, so, but we get, we get a lot, again, McIntyre writes some really, really good adaptations of these in a way that, that really yeah. adds some depth and fleshes out what the movie couldn't, and it feels like a bonus. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where the you can watch the movie and it's fine. You don't feel like there's anything yeah. missing, but you get all these extra yeah. layers in the novel. Uh, and what one thing I found about interesting about the novel is they go uh, Savick and David go into this thing about biocontrol. Mm-hmm. 
which is their form of birth control. You know, they can control their own bodies to not hmm. reproduce after having sex. And that gets rid of that fan theory about Sabbath. Yeah, because the fan theory was that she stays on Vulcan at the end in Voyage Home because she's pregnant with Spock's baby because um, she... Uh, she helps him through Pontfire Faces me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I'm kind of glad it does get rid of that fan theory that she, she makes a conscious choice to stay on Vulcan. It's not due to circumstance. Um, it's also due to the producers wanting to keep just have the original crew and not <laughs> and not the new character. Yeah. Um, so they kind of they kind of chuck Cunningham her out of there. But um, the one thing that uh, I one scene that I love in this book is her and David as they as um, are our way into figuring out what has gone wrong with the Genesis project. And one of the scenes, and I believe it's the two of them, but there is a scene in the underground underground section of regular one where his can be completely overgrown. Um, and like, yes. like, so where they had been in the Wrath of Khan, where, um, you know, Carol Marcus was like, you know, it took two years for them to Starfleet engineers, Starfleet Corps engineers to dig out this tunnel. What I did there and there, I did in a day, you know, and, and, um, and, uh, they come back in and his, all it is, it has overgrown and exploded and that something has gone wrong. So it's good foreshadowing for the planet breaking apart later. Um, probably not a scene they wanted to film for the movie because they may, maybe they didn't have the budget. They didn't feel it fit into the pacing and everything. So they, they explain it away with proto matter in, um, in, in the film. Like, in other words, in other words, it was her tisking him for basically taking a shortcut um, you know, because, you know, we, what do you want results in the way they would naturally progress or do you want to see something cool really now? And, and, and he went that way because. Yeah. Well, and yeah, in the novel, it was more of, I noticed this problem and didn't bring yeah. it up. Yeah. But we also get into what I like is that, um, and before we go into the voyage home, um, you get a little bit more into the politics behind everything when it comes to Genesis, because by the time they got they get back to Earth in this banged up enterprise, it's been enough time for the Starfleet and the Federation to really bicker over what to do with this problem they have. And then for the word of what has happened to reach the Klingons and the black market and everything. So all of the things that set up the conflict in this movie Enough time has happened for us to understand how it could happen, you know. Right. And then we get to the voyage home, which takes place, you know, several months later. Uh, you recently, as of our recording this, so maybe about a month, month and a half uh, before this is going to drop, <laughs> mentioned, and, and I, we had a conversation over Facebook Messenger about this, about how bad the score is in this movie. And I said, I, and said how it's kind of like a, it sounds like a Christmas music, the, the start of a Christmas special or something, uh, the main theme. Yeah. And, um, and how, and, and the scene you pointed out was from the scene where Chekhov is pursued through the aircraft carrier and falls and, and cracks his skull open. It's done with too much whimsy in terms of the score, and the score is a detriment to this film. It's not bad music, it just doesn't fit. Uh, there are times where this feels like a reunion special, more than a 
full length movie, but at the same time, it, it has the fun of like assignment earth, the, the, the Gary seven episode I, I mentioned earlier. And I could tell that the like nobody is having more fun in this movie than DeForest Kelly. I mean, it's just like he is having this man is like, you know, and, and a couple of them really didn't do any other movies um, besides this. And and he was one of them. It was just I think he at this point in his career was like, you know, I'm kind of done. and I'll just do the Star Trek movies because they're fun to do. And you can tell he is enjoying himself immensely through this entire movie. And they do some Spielberg rifts, but I think it gets a little too goofy in places. Yeah, that that's my main issue with it, and and this is of the six, this is my hmm. least favorite, and that is because it goes too far, it goes too trouble with mm-hmm. If they had a different score, if James Horner had stayed yeah. on, if they had gotten Jerry Goldsmith back because he is in he five, came back yeah. for five, if they got him for this, and I don't mind. Some whimsy. I don't mind the uh, some goofy bits, but when it's all goofy, and that's what it feels like. It may not be, but that's what it feels like. It's just we want to be silly. But if you had some tension, then it it probably would be better in mm-hmm. my opinion. But that the music it just sucks all of that yeah. out. And uh, the and there are two chases in this. The first one being the aircraft carrier. The second one being the rescue mm-hmm. in the hospital. And they're both. It feels like they should be part of the show. <laughs> yeah, can he sacks? And I don't. Yeah. Well, okay. Picture that. Picture the hospital scene with Jack and Sacks playing, and it fits. If they had more dramatic music, like. Are they going to get out of this? Not, oh, look how goofy we are. Oh, that we grew a kidney. Yay. (laughs) It would have been if you had um, now granted this. I'm making a reference to something that's like was made 35, 40 years later. But there's that episode of The Mandalorian where on the prison ship and and it's, you know, it is is almost a very Terminator type of episode. But the music really helps it with that tension. Music like that. Make it feel give it that give it that sort of. Terminator-esque tension of, uh, in, especially in the hospital, um, you know, and and because there's enough goofiness throughout the rest of the film, you know, with some of the time travel stuff, and there are a couple of very funny bits, you know, Spock Vulcan neck pinching the punk on the on the bus is funny. <laughs> it's legitimate funny. The yeah. the fact that everybody's. Um, uh, the the scene where he's just swimming alongside the whale and and uh, and. <laughs> Jillian Hicks just flips out. Uh, Jillian, uh, Catherine Hicks. Jillian just flips out. She's like, "What the hell's going on?" It, it, it's and and her. I love. I like her in this movie a lot because she totally sees through Kirk's crap, and is he is more charmed by her than he she is by she could possibly be by him, and so they're not exactly like romantically involved. I think in later. Um, in later expanded universe, I think they did have a relationship, but there's a, I really like her as a foil for him. And and I don't necessarily need to see them shift because she really is witty. And, and Catherine X is a very, very good actress for this role. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree that the, Believe it or not, Jim Kirk can't be yeah, friends yeah. with women, but it's, just, <laughs> it, it, it's fun well, to see Shatner act smitten the way he does in that scene in yeah. the restaurant or over pizza. 
it's really, really, it's, it's, it's a really good scene. Yeah. And it, it's the, the back and forth between the two of them are, it's, it's really well done. Well written, well acted. Uh, the, one of the things, and you know, I'll, I'll move a little bit okay. into the novelization here. After reading the novelization, one of the things that made a little more sense to me is the whole Vulcans and Sucrose thing, where in order to get exact change for the bus, because the 23rd century has money, they just, one, don't have physical money, and two, don't know the denominations of 300 Yeah, they weren't equipped for time travel. They didn't have the Doc Brown suitcase. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So they, uh, Kirk has to go and essentially buy candy. Mm -hmm. So he buys two pieces of candy in two separate transactions to get the money for the bus. Gives one to Spock. Spock eats it, then realizes, oh, there's sucrose in here. Vulcans get drunk on sucrose. (laughs) So that makes the jumping in the the tank with the whales and the interaction, the, uh, uh, you know, yes, no, no, yes, thing with the Italian makes more sense because Spock is actually a little bit loopy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, th- this the novelization is a little bit more by the numbers than the other two, but it does expand upon some things. It gives some good backstory through the beginning of the book to tie it into her novelization of three. The the, the, the whale probe, which is basically like V'ger Mark II, essentially uh, whaleger. Um, it's a it's a legitimately high threat. At least it gives us the disaster movie feel. And it gives us a reason for uh, them to hop back in time. At least, at least it's a good setup because it's a it's a planet wide threat. It's like okay, I, I can see the scale of it, even though it is you know we've been we've we've been here before. But what I the one thing I the one thing that stuck out at me at the in my notes here for the Voyage Home novel is uh, a we get the scene where Sulu meets his ancestor which was a famous, I don't know if it was ever filmed, but it was a scripted scene. And in this book, we see Carol Marcus reacting to David's death. And we never get that in the movies because B.B. Bish did not want to come back or whatever. She, she never, she never came back and she, she shows up again in the books because she'll show up again in, in later novels. And Annie Leyland for years has had this huge gripe about generations in the woman that Kirk is in, quote, paradise with, whatever that dimension is, it's just some random woman. Why isn't it Carol Marcus? Why isn't it Edith Keeler? Couldn't you have gotten those? I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure BB Bish was still alive at that point. You know, well, even if or, she or recast the role. <laughs> in generations, you don't see the woman. It doesn't. Have to be an actress. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> you don't have to get Joan Collins. Just say, because yeah. just say. Because if you're gonna Ruth, do, yeah, if, if you're gonna Carol. put Kirk into for the man who has everything, you have to give him the ideal. And what we've seen in the movies up to that point is, and the TV series up to that point, are there's a very small group of women that Kirk loved, in the sense was devoted to. 
I think making her name Lori, like making it Lori from the motion picture would have been too deep a cut for anybody to really, really get it. It had to be either of those two. But I'm glad that we get Carol, at least in that scene here, because we get to see again the the more of the after effects of the events of two and three beyond just John Shuck screaming in the in the Federation conference room about you know, there'll be no peace as long as James Kirk lives, you know, because, you know, it's <laughs> because he's he's pissed off at what they did. So we get we get more of a we get more of a personal look into that. And I think we could have gotten that. Um, well, I don't know if we could have gotten the Carol Marcus scene, but we definitely could have gotten some some more in the exposition of, of the voyage home. Yeah, because uh, in in the movie, as soon as Foxy gets time travel, Kirk's like, oh, yep, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the novelization, he is a little more hesitant. It's like, uh, you know, every time we do this crap, something goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just a little bit more of hesitation until he realizes, yeah, it's really the only yeah. way. That would have served it a, a, a lot better, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I will say, though, for all this movie's flaws, the one scene it gets 100% right is the last scene of the movie. When they come past the Excelsior and the Enterprise is sitting there and he says, we're home, I still get goosebumps watching that scene. It is such mm-hmm. a great scene. Uh, yeah. So so there is a there is a semi-sequel novel to this. It's called Probe. I did find a copy because I, I got a lot of these. I only had to get like two or three of these books off of eBay. Uh, most of them I found at a local used bookstore for about two bucks a piece. So I was very happy about that. Probe was one of them. It's apparently the author didn't want it that way. She didn't write it. It was the editors of the book who literally rewrote portions of the book to tie it to Star Trek Four. Um, yes. Yeah, she's essentially disavowed the book. I did this a little bit of research for this, but a few th- key things from the novel, it's all right. It, it has its moments. It doesn't mention The Final Frontier, because I don't know if it was written before or after that movie came out. Um, the Romulans play a part in it. There's a little bit of that late Cold War allegory in there. It does foreshadow their role in the Undiscovered Country a little bit, or it just kind of logically ties into that. Uh, the probe is given a perspective in the same way uh, that V'ger was in the motion picture novelization. There is a vague hint at the role of the Borg in the probe. Um, and I know there have been fan theories of the Borg being in with the role of V'ger, which I actually have to be, be honest, don't like. Um, I have nothing against the Borg. I actually like them as a next-gen villain. The Best of Both Worlds was such a great, you know, <laughs> the end of that first part. Oh, yeah. You know, I like First Contact a lot, but it, it becomes one of those things where they become like Bane or Doomsday. You, you can't use them too much or else it starts to these, you know, these guys again. And I think that to tie them into something with either the probe here or the probe in the first one is just, it's like, you know, I don't think it's necessary. You could have more than one planet of sentient mechanical life you know <laughs> it's a big universe out there yeah the, the galaxy is not mm-hmm. that small <laughs> now not that V'ger couldn't have come in contact 
with the Borg. I, I want to say this is in one of Shatner's novels or something where this gets mentioned. I have to actually follow. follow I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. But like, you know, if you want to theorize that maybe V'ger came in contact with the Borg, they couldn't assimilate it. You know, so there's some sort of memory of them. Okay, that makes sense because it's a these are a big thing. It's been exploring for a long time. But yeah, the, the idea that they that there's there's more of a solid connection is kind of dumb. But we get into the final frontier. I saw this on my 12th birthday. My 12th birthday was June 23rd, 1989. I mentioned that exact date because I went to see Star Trek V on June 23rd, 1989. Not uh, Batman, Star Trek V. Your parents didn't like No, I asked much. for this. Yeah, they they, oh, they let me. I was like, I'm going because I was excited to see it. I like Star Trek, but I did obviously go see Batman at one point. Um, I, and the funny thing is, is I think I've seen this one the least. Uh, I I liked it when it first came out, but on subsequent viewings, it it was not good. I watched it. Um, I remembered it being worse than it actually is. So it was it, it's aged a little bit better than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. There's way too much goofiness, and this time the comedy beats don't really work in many places. I think that's what bothered me. Um, it's not completely unwatchable. Uh, the Nimbus 3 stuff is really good. There's a Mad Max feel to it that I thought really worked well. It's something that we haven't seen explored a lot. Cybok being Spock's brother makes no sense to me. It's, I don't even think it – you could have him not be – you could have him just be a renegade Vulcan that everybody knew about and have no familial relation, I think the movie would have gone the same way. That's like some crap Jeff Johns would pull the DC Universe years later. Ah. Just like, and the ending is weak sauce. I'm sorry. I know parts of the ending, they didn't do what they could because they didn't have the budget. Special effects didn't work out the way they wanted to. So I was not a, I was not a huge fan of this movie. And I'm trying not to crap all over it because it's it's not as bad as I remember, but I don't think it's one that I would come back to. It's my least of the my least favorite of the six. So what are your thoughts on that? On the final frontier there i like i said i like it better than four uh yeah there there's some humor in here that does fall flat but you see i i disagree with the if he wasn't spock's okay. brother it would have all turned out the same because spock specifically says in the movie uh that you asked me to kill my brother okay which, which, you know, if if he was just a renegade Vulcan, I don't think Spock would have okay. an issue. It, now, if if they had instead explained, oh, he was a close friend of mine growing mm. up, then you know that might have been different. But I just think they needed that okay. shorthand of, you know, because so, Sarek in the original series was over a hundred. Mm. So he hadn't been married to Amanda that long. It's it is conceivable that he had a first wife, and as they explain in the novelization, that marriage was annulled because she went to become a priest. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I, I yeah, I, I just I think yeah. it, it would make more it makes more sense this way. Uh, but then the the whole thing with Kirk. I know I'm going to die alone thing, and because you guys are in the same general vicinity means that this fall off of a, a huge mountain isn't going to kill me. Yeah. Take it a little far. Yeah. I mean, the, 
Kirk having a death wish tracks more in the novel than it does in the film because it's almost played up too much for laughs in the film anyway. Um, now, this is where I have to give credit where credit is due because Andy Leyland is the one who kind of set me off on this path because he mentioned – I think in a conversation with him or, or in a um, – or maybe in an episode he did before he did his episode of the novelizations that there's a good movie in this novel. It just never made it to the screen. And this novelization is really good. It makes you want to watch this movie because you're reading it, especially because they give you so much backstory on this planet of, of galactic harmony or whatever they call it. Um, Nimbus free. They give you a backstory on the Klingon ambassador, the Romulan ambassador, the Federation ambassador that goes, that is, that explains how susceptible they are to Cybok when Cybok comes in and plays, you know, cult leader. And, um, and it, 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 it all, it all works so well. And J.M. Dillard was, like I said, I read a couple of her other novels and I really, really enjoyed them anyway. So going in, I knew I was in the hands of a good writer and, and I really, um, I really enjoyed the novel in a way that, um, that I didn't get from the movie. Yeah. The, the novel and, Again, like I, I wrote mm-hmm. as soon as I, I read the prologue, mm-hmm. it's like you you film yeah. that prologue, stick it in front of the, the credits and the movie makes so much yeah. more sense because it's all, it's about Cybok's mother and how she is being defrocked, basically, for accessing forbidden knowledge and using that forbidden knowledge of the emotional Vulcans, etc., to essentially brainwash Cybok. Yeah. And she uses the pain thing on Cybok, and it makes him in, and she's feeding him all this stuff about him being the Messiah and everything, and that it's going to twist a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and and it just you're right. If if they had filmed that, and then years and years later, him show up in Nimbus three and come across the guy who's digging holes in the middle of the desert, um, and even then, the film is really good up until he starts taking over the Enterprise, and then it just kind of veers off into a direction. I'm like, you know, like I said, it could have it could have been better. And even the um, the Klingon captain, who's kind of the the you know the, the buffed up pissy teenager captain. Because he has, he's like, you know, it's like, he's like, he's like Kiefer Sutherland and Stand By Me, you know, he like, he's like Ace, you know, playing, he's basically out there shooting, playing mailbox baseball with a Klingon bird of prey because he's bored. And then, oh, you see, I, I was looking at that like, oh, I heard about this V'ger thing. This ain't happening yeah. again. Because <laughs> he shot a second. Ah, funny, funny, funny. Yeah. Um, but I was just kind of like, this is just kind of funny how he's like, you know, I'm going after him and, and everything. And there are some really good scenes with that and all. But it's, yeah, it, it's kind of clunky. But the novel makes it much, much better. And, and I think it's because it gives more, it allows the characters more room to breathe and it gives us more, uh, it gives us more depth to everything. Yeah. And that's, that's the main thing. One, one of the problems I have with the movie is Cybok comes up to you, hugs you, and then you look like <laughs> it doesn't go into anything about John, who's the guy digging mm-hmm. the holes, 
about his wife dying and how he felt guilty and Cyborg taking, you know, no, she was going to die anyway. It's not your fault. Our uh, Sulu was the big one. That was a, a big backstory about how he felt guilty about one of the fellow settlers dying in a pirate attack because he mm-hmm. got lost. And even if you, you don't have to show it, show us his reactions, show us George Takai doing something. Oh, no, no, I'm lost. I can't find it. Oh, you know, she's going to die. And then no, she was dead already. Just dialogue back and forth. And then, oh, the pain is gone. Yes, I'll follow you. Like, like we see with yeah. McCoy. But don't show it to us. Just have them act it out briefly. And then you at least get something out of it rather than just, oh, yeah, we're we're all happy and following him now. We're not going to get yeah. any reason. Yeah, so, um, and the movie did not do particularly well. I mean, granted, it had competition because it was 1989. 1989 was Ghostbusters 2. It was Batman. It was uh, later in the year, was Back to the Future Part 2. It was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was Star Trek V. And, of course, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which, for all the goofiness of that title, was a big movie. In 1989, yeah. it's actually it's, it's a movie I've watched several times when I was in, in junior high because my sister loved it. We always watch it all the time. It's a great movie. So this did this underperformed, but they wanted to do one more. Um, and uh, so the Understudy Country comes out in 1992. This is and I believe it was announced as the last movie for the original crew timed for the 25th anniversary of the series. Produced essentially in conjunction with the Next Generation series, there were a lot of redress sets, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you can read all about the making of and in various sources. I was very psyched for this. You know, but like I said, by the time Generations comes out, it's 95. I'm done with high school. I'm heading off to college. There was this girl. Uh, m- music was really <laughs> more of my thing. Comics, um, you know, I... I <laughs> To use a Star Trek metaphor, I beamed out a little bit. Uh, like I said, I did see First Contact in the theater and really enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, it kind of, you know, I, I have a real appreciation, but I, I any, for, any chance for me being a hardcore Trekker beyond six was kind of lost as, as I, you know, went to my late teens, my twenties. Um, I may check out Star Trek Beyond, by the way, just to, tangentially. I've heard Into Darkness is absolutely terrible, but I heard Beyond was actually pretty good. So, uh, anyway, so I have a longer cut of this on VHS, which they had some reinserted scenes, but they're not that vital to the story. I, I watched this a couple years ago because Rob Kelly did a commentary of this for Film and Water. And then I, and of course I watched it for our, our thing here. Um, I've always liked the story, but I like a good Cold War thriller. And it's it's a really good conspiracy theory story uh, of, of three people, you know, of, of this conspiracy to frame Kirk and McCoy to take down to disrupt the peace, which if you watch the last season of The Americans, there's a similar conspiracy going on behind the scenes for a bunch of hardline communists who want to take out Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987 because of what's going on with Reagan and glass notes, et cetera, et cetera. So it tracks um, Admiral Cartwright being part of it. um, Kind of makes sense plot wise. I know Brock Peters didn't like it, uh, from what I've read. Um, I also have to mention that Brock Peters, of course, his f- most famous role is as Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, you know, so they, they get some very 
prestige people for these for these movies. And of course, Red Foreman here is the Federation president. I like I, I love I love the movie. I like Kim Cattrall as Valeris. Some of the more funny bits do work. Where Kirk knees the guy in the knee, and we realize that not all aliens have their genitalia between their legs. Iman playing on the whole Kirk, again, playing on the whole Kirk libido thing and tricking mm-hmm. them. Uh, the scene where Valeris thinks she's got the guy dead to rights for the murder because the grab boots are in his locker, and then they pan down to his feet, and he's an alien with all like warp looking feet that couldn't possibly fit in the boots. I thought that was pretty funny. I mean, so there's little things in there, but overall I thought it was a really good action piece. The whole idea of a, of a new Klingon ship that can fire when cloaked and, um, little things in there. I, I really only have a couple of, of quibbles with it. One, the Romulans serve a legitimate reason for not dismantling Starfleet. Anyway, I realized that Cartwright's a little paranoid that, that they're going to, disarm to the point where they're going to be vulnerable but it's a piece that they're working on between the klingons and the federation the romulans are still there but they're still going to be a threat also we didn't completely dismantle our military (laughs) after the cold war we drew back big time and there were huge huge cuts in defense which put a lot of people outside out of out of um out of work but we didn't get completely rid of it which is a, an enormous flaw in the force awakens to bring up star wars the idea that the new republic completely disarmed because they didn't want to look like the empire and leia had to form a military resistance unit and i was just like it that, that didn't track for me because i was like no you, you you still keep an army um because you won and the other one is the scene where uhura has to flip through dictionaries to figure out how to talk to a bunch of klingons it's like uhura knows klingon come on well that see that 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 part in the novelization i like because so, instead of in the because mo- in the movie they say, oh, well, we can't use your universal translator. They'll know it's a universal mm-hmm. translator. Okay, that kind of tracks if you go all the way back to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah. Because on uh, Epsilon 9, you hear the, the translated text from the Klingon commander. And it, you know, it's obviously a computer voice. So if that's how they're doing mm-hmm. it, yeah, I can kind of see that. But in a novelization, it's another sabotage. It's the universal translator is literally not working. Okay. So they so they have to do something. Yeah. But yeah, I see I don't know about who are knowing Klingon so much because like they deal with universal translators mm. constantly. No uh, one actually has to know. I would have I mean I, I, I'm nitpicking. Honestly, and and my quibble my yeah. quibble is more with like she would know it, but maybe it would be rusty. So they need to they need to add like a line of dialogue or something. You could no prize that scene away. It just made her look dumber than she actually is as a, as a character who was played for last. But again, you know, because um, it, it, it has this great starship battle at the end, and um, and again, Christopher Plummer and William Shatner attack the scenery like a buffet in Vegas, and it's so great. Um, and, uh, and then of course, when I, when I watched Endgame, Avengers Endgame, and all the signatures came up, my, I went 
right to start. I was like, it's like Star Trek Six. This is so great because I just love it. It's such a great again. It's it's such a great send off to have that little sequence in such a good movie. Um, and I, I really thought the novel was very so- solid. We got more of Valeris. We got more of the Klingon Chancellor's daughter, Carol Market. And there's a couple of terror attacks that happen in the beginning of the book that aren't in the movie uh, that are prologue because, they, in all honesty, you don't necessarily need them in the film. You know the the. No, you you can you can get enough of everyone being paranoid yeah, yeah, yeah. about it. Without that, just because, like they say in the film, they've been fighting for so long with the Klingons, they can't move past. Yeah, but I like how they put a couple of terrorist attacks in there, and one of them puts Carol Marcus in a coma. And um, it shows that how deep this and long conspiracy has been going on. So that's some great stuff. And it implies that the Enterprise A had another mission between five and six, and I want to say ten years if I'm – if I – Got the note correctly. Uh, let's see. It's because I know the Excelsior is wrapping up a three-year uh-huh. mission, which was Sulu's first. Yeah, so it, it might. So yeah, it's it's been. I I want to say it's because they mentioned ten years mm-hmm. in the novel. I just don't okay. remember what that context is. But either way, they've had a mission of a few years, which also explains why they have emissions equipment on board the Enterprise. It's kind of hand waved in the right. movie, and you're like, okay, they've got this. They've got the equipment to attract the emission that the Klingon ship is getting off, so they can figure out where it is cloaked, and that's how they. That's how they're able to destroy it. But in this case, the, it's just something. It's like almost like a Chekhov's gun. No pun intended there. Um, yeah. But this whole thing, it, it was just you know, uh, she she kept very close to the film. And only added where she needed to in, in the novelization, but it was a really, really good one to go out on, and it was a really good. Uh, it, it made for a really good movie to go out on too, and I was really glad that that it lived up to, um, you know, what I thought the novel would be. Yeah, it, it was in in the the novel and in the movie. It was a definite passing of the torch, which worked out really nicely. Uh, more so than the generations passing mm-hmm. the torch, but I, I can see why they want to do that. But yeah, the, because in the original series, it's their five year mm-hmm. mission. When you get into start the end of Star Trek Two, when Leonard Nimoy's saying it, it's the continuing mm-hmm. mission. Then here you go from where no man has gone before to no one, passing it on to next gen, and it. And, you know, you had some some crossover in actors, too, specifically yeah. Michael Dorn playing his ancestor, Colonel mm-hmm. Worf, as the defense yeah. attorney, which I, I liked the, the one thing in the novel that I really wish was in the movie was McCoy turning to Worf and saying, OK, is it our turn now? It's no. We all present at the same time. We've had our turn. Yeah. Yeah. Although I like the don't wait for the translation because that's a, that's a callback to um, mm-hmm. something in the UN involving the Soviets and stuff, so which was was just cute. And Rurapente as a as a prison planet worked in a in a we got to get the hell out of Mos Eisley sort of way. You know, they played with 
they played with the, the the wider universe that is involved in this, as opposed to just using aliens for window dressing, which kind of happens in four, um, and and in some cases in three with the bar scene, and in four with like the assembly scene and everything. But here you actually get some interaction with some aliens the way we would have back in the back in the day, and um, and allow them to do a little bit more grunt work than they did in, in a couple of the previous movies. I mean, I know some of these guys are getting old, but, you know, they were they were able to put their back into it a little bit more in, in this one. Shatner was able to throw a few punches. Yeah. And this one, actually, I think more than most of the other films, this one felt like it could have been maybe a two-parter mm. of, of the TV mm-hmm. show. And it... I'd say I'd like yeah. that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the guy that likes Star Trek Insurrection because it feels like absolutely mm-hmm. TV. Y'all have to check that. I, like I said, I never did see Insurrection and I never saw Nemesis either. So I figured, don't, don't bother don't Nemesis, bother but I, I, I just, Insurrection I just missed. You know, it was, there was no, there's no real reason for me seeing it aside from it just passed me by. Um, you know, and, uh, but yeah, this was a, it, it, I, I I liked going back um, and and looking at all these and whereas I'll probably offload my copies of the expanded novels, but I'm going to hold on to these novelizations because I'd go back and reread these even without watching the films. Yeah, I, I agree. I've I've read the motion picture novelization mm-hmm. four times. <laughs> Since, since I, and like I said, I hadn't yeah. read it until five years ago. So, uh, but yeah, I, I'm going to hang on to these. Now, these, I don't have physical copies of the other mm-hmm. five because I got them gotcha. on Kindle. And there's fairly, fairly reasonably well, priced from what I remember. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're going to sit in my Kindle libraries. Oh, I want some Star Trek. I can read. I'll, I'll read the novelizations. Nice, what the nice. Um, now, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting into the comics again with the with the continuity and everything. Um, I have I did buy the uh, facsimile edition that recently came out of the motion picture adaptation from Marvel, in the, which was fun as anything. Not as good yeah. as the Roddenberry novel, <laughs> we'll say it. Not as good as the movie, <laughs> but it was a fun adaptation. Um, I have three, five, and six. I have to get four. And two was the only one that was not done in the 80s, but IDW put out an adaptation of it uh, a number of years ago. I found the first issue in a back issue bin, so it's probably something I'll go just to have for continuity's sake to have it. And maybe I might revisit all of this down the line when I finally picked up the remainder of the issues that I need for uh, for this uh you know, for, for this series. Um, yeah. See, I, I got the, uh, that the CD that mm. came out many moons ago, which had up until that point, every Star Trek comic book ever published. So I have all of Marvel, all of DC, both versions. I've even got gold. <sighs> wow. I've read a couple of those. Which there. are, those yeah. are a trip. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and like you said, the, the, the novels are available for Kindle. They're read, you can probably find them here and there in, in used bookstores. It's where I got all of them except for Wrath of Khan. I actually bought that off of eBay and I 
didn't pay very much for it. You can probably find them on eBay as well. Um, if you're a fan of the movies, I'd check them out. I'd also dabble with some of the Expanded Universe books if they look interesting to you, if you come across them, because they were always a good, solid read, you know? Um, uh, some of them outpaced the Star Wars ones, because uh, some of the Star Wars ones are great, and some of the Star Wars ones are really bad. Um, <laughs> well, the... The thing with the Star Wars novels is once Zahn started, mm. then they kind of had to keep to a kind of chronology. Mm-hmm. Oh, we need to mention this yeah. and that and the other. Whereas the Star Trek novels are self Yeah. They're not really going to mention other events unless it's Yeah, I was gonna say there's a couple of there's a couple of novels that tie into one another because the same author wrote them, so they they wrote one and then a few years later came back and wrote a sequel to the one that they had written. But even then they all act almost as just extra episodes of the television series or a television series, so to speak. Um, and there's a lot to dive into. There are hundreds of Star Trek books, both um uh, original series, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, uh, Enterprise. I think there might be a couple of Discovery ones. I don't know how, you know, I honestly haven't looked in, in years. Uh, the, the series, the original series is available for streaming. I think the movies are as well. Either the Blu-rays are easy to come by and the Blu-rays were very much worth it. So. Yeah, but believe it or not, cause I, I tried to watch all these mm-hmm. streaming just because <laughs> getting the DVDs out is a yeah. pain in the butt. But I could not find on any platform without paying for it separately. Mm, interesting. And I I don't know why. So at, when it came time for that, I said, okay, <laughs> pull it pull it out. And but I you know yeah. got them all. And just because I am who I am. <laughs> Tonight, before we started recording, I watched. Nice, <laughs> nice. Um, and uh, I have saved on YouTube. Somebody has, through means, posted the uh, scores to all the movies. So I have playlists of the motion picture and Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock. And I think six as well, if I if I can find it. Um, posted every once in a while. I'll just sit there. It's background noise for my working um, because it's mm-hmm. uh, they're great to listen to. Um, but, uh, before I let you go, uh, please let everybody know where they can find you out on the, uh, on the internet. All right. Well, uh, podcasting wise, I'm mainly doing guest spots right now. The, uh, the class 1000 podcast is, which is the Marvel phase rip live action role playing that we do, uh, is just wrapped up season one. We are going to be going on hiatus uh, just for a few months to get retool things because originally I was playing at a table with all my friends and now I'm many states away <laughs> <laughs> and some people are being added, some people are going away, so it's it's a whole thing. Uh, I have three shows on Two True Freaks, the Hammer Podcast, which is whatever the heck I want to talk about. That really hasn't updated recently. Uh, the Quantum Cast, which I do with Adam Worth, about all about Quasar. We may or may not be getting back to that soon. And Anime Freaks with Dr. Bill. That will be coming out again as soon as the new website premieres. We already have two episodes in the can nice. ready to go. Uh, and then something else that will be coming out, and it will be on the Longbox Crusade Network. 
and because I'm not exactly sure when it's coming out, I'm not going to say any more than that. It's just going to involve myself and Jared the Yard Soul Alright. And I will be uh, back right after this quick break, so uh, stick around. Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Red alert. All crew members report to battle stations. Red alert. Shields up. What shields? You start the officers. Now start acting like it. Oh, it's just Garrett. Plain, simple Garrett. Dax, we might have just discovered the first stable wormhole known to exist. The wormhole does ring them our way, doesn't it? Everyone wants a piece of the new frontier. It's what's all to become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. Quite a motley crew you've assembled here, Benji. Listen to The Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. And here are your hosts, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro. Bloody hell. Oh, I love a woman in uniform. I'd like to thank Gene for coming on and talking about Star Trek. We had a great conversation because the two of us really just love these films and we really enjoy those books. You can check out Gene at the Hammer Strikes. I highly recommend you do. As for me, make sure you come back here in two weeks for the latest episode of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, and then come back in September for my next episode, which will be music-themed, as I'll once again be delving into my history of my musical taste by looking at the very early 1990s, especially the radio stations I listened to. Until then, check out the blog for more essays between episodes, and as always, thanks for listening, and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. 
For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Thank you.